I love that last song. So good. I almost feel like we should sing it right after the preaching as well. Good morning. Happy Sunday to you. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Uh, thank you, God, that um, even in the midst of, uh, of colds and, and um, other uh, potholes, God, that you are good and that you are great and you are worthy to be praised. God, you are worthy of all glory, praise, and honor. And God, we thank you that your mercies are new today. God, I thank you that uh, we can gather together freely, that we have the privilege to come together and to uh, sit, in, sit under the teaching of the word, to, uh, to sing to you and to hear each other sing to you, and to fellowship with one another. And I pray, God, that you would um, draw us near today, God, that we would be encouraged and reminded that we can draw near and to uh, be encouraged to hold fast to our confession of hope and to consider um, how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. So God, be honored and glorified, and may you um, change us from the inside out. God, may we look more like you um, as we leave than we did when we came this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, amen. So we are back in Hebrews, as, uh, as was just read, and uh, I titled the sermon, Let Us Meet Together. And um, it really is a, uh, this, this section of scripture really is a watershed. It's, our, it's a continental divide of sorts in the book of Hebrews, where he's been uh, talking about the indicatives of, of who Christ is, who the, um, the difference between the new covenant and the old covenant, um, old sacrifice, new sacrifice. Now he's going to talk, start talking about the imperatives. Um, uh, now what, so what. You know, we're, just, we're coming out of a pretty hard season, right? Uh, this, this whole COVID season. I think we're still kind of coming out of it. I think we're out of it all the way, aren't we? Like, I feel like we are. Um, but it was, there were times uh, during COVID, at the very beginning, like in that March through, I don't know what, March 2020 through maybe June, something like that. Um, I know we didn't have Easter in 2020. Uh, we didn't have um, Easter in the building. We had it virtually. And, um, and I just remember, like, we'd come in here on a Thursday, and we would record the sermon, we'd record the music, um, like on an iPhone, and then we would put it out to you, and, and, um, and I think many of you engaged in that, but it just wasn't the same. It wasn't the same as gathering together, um, that we are, um, we've, been, uh, we've been purchased um, by the blood of Christ to be a gathered people. Um, a people that uh, not just um, gathered one day in heaven, but to gather uh, together today and weekly. And, um, um, and, and I miss that. But I remember like uh, watching on Sunday morning. I'd record it on Sunday. I'd preach on a Thursday, and then I'd watch it on Sunday. My wife and I, with a cup of coffee, um, watching myself, like that, if that's not torture, like watching myself preach just because I wanted to like enter in. And, uh, and sing along with my wife and, um, and, the, uh, and, the, and the, the, the computer. And, uh, and I remember going like, this is kind of nice. I'm not dressed. I'm not showered. I could hit pause on me and go to the bathroom, pull up my coffee. Nobody notices. I can daydream. Um, and I don't have to get in my car. And I don't have to worry about walking in a door and like, like trying to put on a facade and trying to be somebody or trying to like think about how to encourage somebody. Uh, I could just be like in my own little world, my own little selfish world, um, listening to um, 
a joyful noise coming out of my mouth as I sang. If we had a dog, the dog would be howling. Um, but my wife and I sang together. It was good. At the same time, we, um, we were away from the gym um, as well. Our gym shut down for a while, so we, the gym did kind of a cool thing. They let you check out barbells, dumbbells, kettlebells, that type of thing. So we checked out some equipment, and we would have these, these garage workouts, just my wife and I, and it was sweet, actually. And we put on some Creedence Clearwater Revival, and then, uh, you know, on a Tuesday and on Wednesdays, it'd be Christian music, but we'd alternate back and forth. And we would, and it was good. Like, we, we enjoyed the time together. But it wasn't the same. And when the gym opened back up, we were, we were asking ourselves, should we go back to the gym? Like, it's cheap at home. It's kind of nice not have to drive away. But we decided to go back. And the reason we went back is that we knew that we needed to be around people. Um, I knew that my worst would come out at the gym and that I would have to, like, um, like, learn to walk in the Spirit. And it also gave us opportunity to engage people with the gospel. So all that to say is that um, it is easier for most of us, even for, for you extroverts, to do life um, like in your own little bubble um, and to not come to the Sunday gathering. The weekly church gathering in America um, has become an add-on to our life. It was already on that slippery slope before COVID, uh, but some of the statistics I'm going to show you today about, um, about professing Christians and their habits um, are, in participating in the Sunday gathering um, are not healthy. Let me just give you an overview of, of, uh, of the book of Hebrews, who it's been written to. Um, Hebrews was either written or it was spoke. We're not sure it was a sermon or it was a letter, but I'm going to refer to it as a letter. So Hebrews was written to a primarily um, Christian audience of Jewish descent, and it was written between 60 and 70 A.D. Now Jesus died, rose, and ascended to the right hand of the Father in about 33 A.D., and, um, and the average life expectancy of people in that era in, in first century was about 35 years of age. The reason that I say that is that the, the author of Hebrews is writing to people that probably did not um, experience Jesus they, or, or his first century followers. Um, most of them were probably dead and gone by the time that this guy wrote to these Christians. Um, the original audience may have been raised in a Christian home, or they may have had come to faith as adults. We can't be sure. We do know that some of these first century Christians were tempted to go back to Jewish traditions. They were raised, and they were raised in these Jewish traditions, most of them were, and they were in the habit, as we're going to see today, that many of these, um, of these first century readers that this author was writing to were neglecting the weekly Christian gathering. And so throughout this letter, the author warns and encourages these first century readers that Jesus is better and he is greater than Moses and the angels and the, uh, and the prophets and the priests and the priest sacrifices. And he calls for the saints to persevere in the faith. Don't give up. Today we're going to hear him say, draw near, hold fast, and consider how to stir one another up love and good deeds. Try stirring one another up to love and good deeds while watching the service online for you three people that are watching us online. There are many reasons people walk away from the historical profession of their faith. 
there's many reasons that people don't come to the Sunday gathering. In that first century, it was easier in many ways to go back to their Jewish roots. Because in, in, in first century Rome, um, those that were converted to Christianity had enemies that were Roman and they had enemies that were Jewish. Um, the Jewish people um, were encouraging Christians to come back to their Jewish traditions. Um, the Jews had a deal with Rome that if, if they would just um, worship in their temple, pay taxes, and not upset the polytheistic culture that worship another 200 gods, um, Rome would leave them alone. So Christians were messing up everybody's life. The author is rightfully concerned because he knows that the longer that these professing believers stray, the harder it will be for them to return. The longer that they stay away from the weekly gathering, the harder it will be for them to return. The first 10 chapters and 18 verses have been making the argument that Jesus and his sacrifice and his priesthood are greater and better than the Old Testament prophets, priests, and sacrifices. In the first 10 chapters, these were what I just referred to earlier as indicatives. And, and at the end of this letter, starting today, we're going to start looking at the imperatives. And since this is true, we can believe and act in a certain way. Since the first 10 chapters are true, this is how we ought to act. Some has called this section today the ought to's. He's gonna, he's, these are, this is what we ought to do. So this passage is a turning point. He starts in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, and when you see a therefore, we're reminded of this often, we've got to ask, what is it therefore? When a biblical author says, therefore, think of this word as a magnifying glass that takes a bigger idea and then zooms into an important aspect of, aspect of it. It says, we've discussed a big truth, first 10 chapters, now here's why that big truth matters. I'm an application guy. This is when it, this is when it starts getting my attention. Um, I want to know the, the what, but I also know the, I want to know the why. I want to know what I'm supposed to do next. If therefore is our signal that something important is being clarified, we should immediately stop and ask ourselves, do I know what is being clarified? It therefore takes the truth being taught and answers the question, so what? Now what? A, fa a father might tell a child, I love you, and I'm your God-given authority. That's the indicatives. The imperative, is, the imperative is, therefore, do what I ask you to do. Therefore, clean your room. The author makes it easy for us here in verses 19 through 25. He summarizes in two verses what he wants to clarify. In verses 20 and 21, the author is going to remind his Christian readers that, that through Jesus we have access to God, and Jesus is our great high priest. Those are the indicatives. That's the big picture of the first 10 chapters, that we have access to Jesus, to God through Jesus, and Jesus is our great high priest. And then in in uh, verses 22 through 25, he gives us three heads of lettuce. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast to our hope, the confidence of our hope. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. And then he's going to give a strong encouragement that kind of ties all this together to not neglect gathering together. So first, we have access to the living God. 
uh, verse 19 and 20. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Under the old covenant, only the high priest, you remember this, only the high priest had the confidence and the authority to go behind the curtain into the holy of holies, which is where uh, God's presence dwelt. He would, and he would only enter on certain days, on the annual day of atonement. And he would only enter after purifying himself. Under the old covenant, the high priest had access because of the blood, the blood of dead animals. Now under the new covenant, Christians have access to God because of the per perfect sacrifice of the sinless God, the shed blood of Jesus. Where only the priest could enter the most holy place through the curtain, Jesus' death on the cross tore the curtain from top to bottom, opening a way for sinful humanity to confidently approach the living God. Jesus entered as our forerunner. It means that he entered first. He paved the way. And he entered as a forerunner, and now he welcomes all who are united with him by faith in his shed blood for the forgiveness of our sins. He's, Jesus talked about the new and living way in John chapter 10, verse 9. Jesus said, I am the door. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. This is the new and living entrance into the presence of God. It's Jesus. Our access through life is through Jesus. The eternal God has become approachable through Jesus. And not only did Jesus enter the heavenly sanctuary as a forerunner to open a way for us, but he sat down at the right hand of the Father where now he reigns and he rules and he intercedes and he is waiting to return. We have Jesus as our great high priest, verse 21. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Jesus is over the house of God or the household of God. And Christians, the household of God is the big C church. It's all Christians throughout all times. This building is not the church. This building becomes the church when the church comes in, the people. The building the work of Jesus, our great high priest, is, as I mentioned, is, is one of reigning and ruling and interceding and waiting. And we, so we have access to the presence of God, and we have Jesus as the great high priest, and therefore, because of these two indicatives, we're exhorted to these three imperatives, these three heads of lettuce, the first head of lettuce, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We must draw near to the throne of grace. And we can draw near to a holy God with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And drawing near with a true heart is a heart that is sincere. It's humble. It's repentant. It's expectant. It's not a heart of hypocrisy, but it's a heart of one who thinks rightly of their own sin, and yet at the same time has full assurance of faith. And how do we have this full assurance of faith? Is we, we have confidence that our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil or guilty conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We are guilty of sin. Christian, you're guilty of sin. But we, not, we, we need not have a guilty conscience. 
And we need not have a guilty conscience because God has forgiven you. He remembers your sins no more and you've been set apart as his prized possession. Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36 spoke about this. He says, I will sprinkle, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, Jesus' sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins gave us a pure conscience. So we no longer need to bring sacrifices to God to appease his wrath and to relieve our conscience. We're free to walk in his statutes and obey his rules as a result of his acceptance and his forgiveness. The cleansing, the, the cleansing of conscience is received through faith and is visibly signified and sealed in water baptism. You see that the guilt is removed from our conscience as we are baptized into Christ Jesus, baptized by the Spirit. That if you've been forgiven, you have been baptized You've been buried with Christ. You've died with Christ. You've been buried with Christ. And you've been raised with Christ. So we can have full assurance of faith that Jesus has opened the door and we can fellowship with him because we've been cleansed. And we can humbly approach him in our sin and know that there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. By the way, this is what we do at the Lord's Supper. That we come with a true heart remembering that we are sinners saved by grace and remembering that we can come to the table with no condemnation, that we can confidently draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance. The second lettuce, we must hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. We often find hope in the promises of authorities. That kids find hope in the promises of their parents. That we oftentimes are hopeful for change when our candidate is elected. Or hopeful for a better economy when someone new is appointed to the Fed. Or hopeful when someone like us, that believes like us, is appointed to the Supreme Court. But none of these appointments can bring lasting hope. Sure hope, lasting hope, breeds perseverance. And perseverance is essential because of the trials that we're facing and that the first century Christians faced. The complete salvation for which we wait will arrive when Jesus appears from heaven. The complete salvation that we, that we hope for will not arrive with a, with a new candidate with a new pastor, with a new spouse, with a new boss. The complete salvation we wait for will arrive when Jesus appears from heaven. In the meantime, our sure hope, our lasting hope, is sustained by the assurance that God, who promised us rescue and rest, is faithful. We read this in Hebrews 6, chapter, uh, uh, verses 19 through 20, um, about a month or so ago says this, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. That's where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
I have this picture. I'm not a climber. Some of you may be climbers, but, but there's a bowlay. And, and my, my understanding is that if you are bowlayed in well, if it's anchored in well, that there's no risk. And you might panic, and you might fall off the wall. And even if you let go of the rope and go, ah, you're still held in. That even though when you don't hold fast, God is holding you fast. Um, when I parachuted out of a plane, it wasn't, a, it wasn't one of those tandem shoot things like you guys did, which I want to do someday, I think, uh, before my heart could stop. But it was, a, it, was, it was on a, when you jumped out, the cord pulled. And so like you're trusting in all of this, that they packed your chute right, um, that they actually tied the thing to the, the bar before you jumped out, because they didn't train us like how to pull something. And so like I'm like jumping out, and I, like I'm pulling on everything. And then the, and the chute comes up, I pop up, and I see little cars down below, and I go like, ha, ah, like how do you steer this thing? And like I'm grabbing things, and I'm tugging on things, and, but, but, the, but this chute was going to get me home safely. It was not going to let me go. And this is just a, this is a picture, this is a weak picture that even when our hope wavers, that God never wavers. If our confession of hope wavers in the midst of trial or in the midst of anxiety, we can hold fast by trusting in the promises of the one who is able to keep these promises. Let me give you just a few um, Old Testament encouragements. Balaam said this in Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and he will, has he said, and will, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Joshua said it on his deathbed, at the end of his life, he said this, Joshua 23, 14. And now, I'm about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. And all come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Everything God said, he will do. And then Isaiah said this in 25.1, Oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things. Plans formed of old, faithful and secure. So, brothers and sisters, no matter what's going on in your life, we must hang on to the anchor of our hope, knowing that when your grip slips, his never, his never does. When our confession of hope wavers, it's not, because we, it's not because the one we confess wavers. It's because we waver. The promise keeper who whom we confess is a faithful and trustworthy promise keeper, and our hope is based on his unfailing promises. I love this quote by Spurgeon. It says, God has given no promise that he will not redeem. He does not offer hope that he will not fulfill. And I like this uh, Hebrews 11, uh, the great Hall of Faith that we'll be preaching through. Actually, Chad and Stephen will be preaching through um, in two weeks. It highlights Sarah. It says, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. And what do we know about Sarah? She doubted God. She actually laughed at the promise of God. 
Yet God has her in the hall of faith. You see, our faith, our hope is going to waver from time to time. And we need to be reminded, as, and we're going to see in a little bit here, we need to remind one another that God never wavers. That he is always faithful to his promises. You see, truth leaks, and we're all prone to pull away and lose hope just like Sarah did. So we need to persevere, and the perseverance needed to continually draw near and hold fast is not a solitary achievement, but it's a corporate calling. So we must consider each other seeking to stimulate loving actions as we meet together, and that leads us to the third head of lettuce. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And even though verses 24 and 25 are one sentence in the Greek, I'm going to break it apart as two. We're going to look at verse 24. So what does it mean to consider? To consider is to seek to understand, to observe, to study one another that you're in fellowship and relationship. The author writes, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. So what this means is, is that when I am in a pastor meeting, like we were in a meeting on Saturday morning, or I'm with my community group on Wednesday, or I'm at coffee with another believer that I am going into that meeting, um, understanding that I'm going in there with image bearers, fellow image bearers that have great gifts and have great issues. And I am to consider each of them. And I don't do this very well. I was thinking about this even after our pastor meeting where I've got, I've got Stephen to my left and I've got Jake and I've got Chad, and I've got John, and then there's me, and am I, am I walking into that as a room of pastors collectively, or a room that has individuals in it that God wants me to consider how to stir them up to love and good deeds based on who they are, and their unique struggles, and their unique giftedness. What does it mean to stir let us consider how to stir up one another. It literally means to provoke or stimulate. Now, usually when we think of a provoke or, or stir up, we think of something negative, don't we? Provoke, provoke them to anger. Provoking someone to, to sin or anger. It's easy to pro provoke someone to anger or to argument or to discouragement. Talk about politics. Sports, CrossFit, dieting, school choice, vaccinations. It's really easy to stir one another up to discouragement and to anger. We did a great job of that, the church in America did, over the last 30 months. See, it's easy for me to know people's hot buttons and want to push them at times. So let me ask you today, how are you considering, how are you stirring one another up in the body of Christ? Are you consciously and intentionally stirring others up to love and good deeds or lazily provoking them towards discouragement, anger, and frustration? Are you stirring them up with a, with a gospel response or a worldly one? The 
The best passage that I could think to read today in this stirring up is Romans 12, 9 through 21. So let me just wash you with this and have you encourage you to let this be your gospel response in all scenarios. Let love be genuine. Abhor or detest what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly or sisterly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. When I come to you with an issue of somebody that has hurt me, Ask me gospel questions. How might God have you respond to that? Have you forgiven them? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate. Let's make a joke there. Do not be hearty. Do not be haughty. Do not be prideful but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Am I intentional in stirring one another up, to others up, stirring you up to love and good deeds? The final head of lettuce is corporate. And I actually think all of these are corporate. There's an individual drawing near. There's an individual holding fast. But truth leaks. And we need each other. But this final one is overtly corporate. And we need to be with each other and not just, not just be with each other, but take off the pretense and confess our sins to one another and to admit our struggles. Um, as you're going to hear here in the next week, another Crossway pastor was disqualified. And it can happen to any of us. It can happen to any of us when we are walking into the corporate gathering with a pretense about us. And I want to just encourage you, this is, this is, this is um, not in the notes and it's no charge. But if you are walking in and dealing with something, this pastor had been dealing with something for 13 years and nobody knew about it. If you're dealing with something, sin, discouragement, anxiety, depression, any kind of brokenness, bring it with you. This isn't a place for perfect people. It's a place for broken people who are being perfected by a perfect God. And so we need each other. 
we gather as saints and sinners. Sinners saved by grace who need to be stirred up by the gospel after being stirred up by the world all week. He says, not to neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. We're commanded to not neglect meeting together. Literally, it means do not forsake the assembling of yourselves. And the word for meet together, the, word, the Greek word behind meet together is episynagogin. It's actually episynagogue. It refers to the formal gathering of God's people for worship. Not just friends listening to sermon downloads um, over a beer in the same room or engaged in an inductive Bible study. These are all good. These are good. But what's best is the weekly gathering of the saints. This meeting together is referring to God's people gathering weekly for worship. We are to persevere and prioritize meeting with our God and with His people in gathered worship. And neglecting to meet together means willfully forsaking. Like, don't walk out here going like, oh my goodness, I'm going to be out of town next week. Like, I hope nobody notices. This is willfully forsaking the gathering. Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This forsaken refers to a mysterious and horrific abandonment of the Father's delightful presence and in its place, the full wrath of God for sin. In 2 Timothy 4.16, Paul refers to Demas, who has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Demas had abandoned Paul as a matter of the will for the fleeting pleasures of this life. Forsaken, neglected or forsaken, is a strong word in the New Testament. It implies willfully neglecting and abandoning something or someone, often for something else. And this negligence is habit-forming. That's why the author can write, as is the habit of son, some. This fir- these first century Christians were in the habit of neglecting the Sabbath gathering of the saints. And they may have thought that they had a good reason to forsake the assembling as they were constantly at risk. They were constantly, excuse me, constantly at risk of being persecuted by both the Jews and the Romans. It was risky. So out of fear, these Jewish Christians may have got into the habit of going back to the synagogue where it was safe or staying home where it was safe. Even with the risk of gathering, the author calls out this first century saints who willfully neglected the weekly gathering to gather. If they could be there, they should be there. So you might be asking, how does this passage apply to us today? A good question to ask is, what is the will of the Lord Jesus Christ in this? The answer is actually not very difficult. In the New Testament, we'll find a surprising amount written about life in the church, the local church. You don't have to look any further than 1 Corinthians chapters 11 through verse 14. Yes, Jesus will build his big C church and the gates of hell will not prevail. However, Jesus established the local church to show the world who his worshipers are and to set us apart from the world. Most of the Pauline epistles were written to who? The local church. 
The book of Acts is about what? The establishment of the local church. The English word church translates the Greek word ecclesia. It's a compound noun which means the called out together. In 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen, we read instructions for when you come together as a church, indicating that there was a unique gathering as a church that was not the same as a few Christians hanging out and talking about Jesus. God's dwelling place, as a man said in a book I just read, can't remember the book or the man, is he, he said God's dwelling place has a congregational shape. It's a place for me to draw near to God by drawing near to a spirit-filled people. Matt Merker in his book Corporate Worship said this. He says, corporate worship must never be anonymous. If we are God's temple, then a Christian service is by definition a communal affair. Unlike going to a movie where you try not to notice who is sitting next to you, at church we warmly greet one another because we share the same spirit. We hear the voices of brothers and sisters we know by name as songs, prayers, and scriptures reverberate around us. Rather than slipping out of our seats after the last song, we stick around and we fellowship. We're a body, and a body functions best when the parts are together. What if all your body parts were separated and they were all operating independent of the rest? Have you ever tried running in the sand without a big toe? Have you ever tried picking something off the floor without hands? The person that says they don't need the church doesn't understand the importance of the body of the Christ. The church gathering is like body parts. The church not gathering is like body parts scattered all over the place and then God telling them, operate like a body. How do we do that when we're not together? We are one body, unified in one Lord, one spirit, and one baptism, Ephesians 4 says. When you are weak, when you are doubting, when you are wavering, you and me need to be washed by the preaching of the word, the singing of the saints, and the participation in the Lord's Supper and the fellowship of the saints. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. There are many members in the body of Christ. In a Barna study about how Christians relate to Christianity, this is 2021, the number of non-practicing Christians is rising, while the number of practicing Christians is in decline. I'm not sure I understand what a non-practicing Christian is. Somebody that doesn't attend the weekly gathering, doesn't read their Bible, doesn't pray, I guess. Non-practicing Christians have grown from 35% to 43% from the year 2000 to 2021. During that same time, practicing Christians declined from 45% to 25%. This trend was in place before COVID, and it's only accelerated the last couple of years. Many Christians are out of the habit of participating in the weekly gathering of their church body. And for this, I'm preaching to the choir, and I know it as I look around this room. When sheep are disconnected to a flock, they are easy targets for the enemy who is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The priority of the church gathering isn't legalism. It's protection. It's growth. 
There are many professing Christians who you know who are living independently of the body of Christ. They need help, and it's up to you and me to get them back. And there are some that are using the excuse of church hurt, and please give me grace here because I know some of you even here have had church hurt, and I'm sorry because shepherds should never hurt their sheep. But shepherds are imperfect, and they will intentionally hurt the sheep at times. But I will tell you, if whether you're listening or whether you're here today or you know somebody that has church hurt, they're going to be hurt worse by the devil himself, by staying away from the gathering. So the author tells Christians to encourage one another, specifically to encourage one another to not neglect the gathering. And we need to encourage disconnected Christians to return so they can be strengthened in their weakness and in their wavering. And I want to just close with this. There are seasons. Many of you have kids in sports. We had kids in sports that would play on Sundays. And this goes back 15, 20 years ago. And sports are neutral. Sports are, are good in many ways. And uh, one of the things we're thinking about is actually... Um, having a seminar on the theology of competition or the theology of sports. And I think oftentimes when you as parents choose to put your kids in sports in their Sunday games, you feel guilty about it. And I feel like the church sometimes gives you um, undeserved shame. So we're not going to talk about it here today, but I would just encourage you to not just, not just walk away from the church because you're afraid of being shamed, but talk to your community group leader. Talk to your pastor. We want to make sure you're plugged in. If there's a season of three months where you can't be at the, you can't be at the Sunday gathering, let's figure out other ways to get you plugged in. We have community groups. We have wonderful uh, women's ministry Bible studies. Uh, none of them replace the Sunday gathering, but at least it gives you a, a connection to the body at some level. Don't disconnect from the rhythms of the local church. I see many teenagers, college students and young adults who grew up in the church neglecting gathering. And parents, sometimes there's nothing we can do to control that. But then I see teenagers, I see families that are prioritizing camping. Like, I'm a camper. I'm a hunter. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Rockies baseball guy on Sundays. So, so don't hear legalism here. What I'm saying is, is that, that, that your life should, um, if you have concentric circles, you've got family, you've got sports, you've got recreation, uh, the, the, the circle they should all touch on is the Sunday gathering. So as, as the best you can, prioritize the Sunday gathering. Not only do you need to be here, but the rest of the body needs to have you here. And what I've seen is that church attendance is the first thing to go. And then after that, it becomes belief. Belief goes last. So I want to encourage you to draw near, hold fast, stir up one another. This is not an individual sport. Attending church on Sunday does not make you a Christian. However, if you're a Christian, you should be gathering with other Christians. And he gives us one last 
big exclamation point. The, the, the greatest reason to gather together is that the day is drawing near. The day, the day of Christ's return is drawing near. This day will bring both judgment and salvation. Therefore, the approaching day simultaneously gives hope to believers, suffering believers. And it should issue a terrifying warning to those who have not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. For the day is our hope. But the day for others is a terrifying warning because he is going to return. And the door to salvation is going to slam shut. And the waters of his wrath are going to pour over all who have not believed in the shed blood of Jesus. So as we close off here and transition to the Lord's Supper, I want to remind you that we have access to God, believer, through the shed blood of Jesus. And that Jesus is on his throne. He's reigning, he's ruling, he's interceding, and he's waiting to come back. Therefore, we can draw near with confidence, with full assurance of faith, we can hold fast to our hope because he's a faithful promise keeper. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. Not neglecting to gather as is the habit of some. Lord Jesus, thank you that, that your ways are true and right. And I thank you for the beautiful truths that motivate our perseverance. And I thank you for the twin truths that we have access to the throne of grace because of your shed blood. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, that the work is finished and you sat down and you're sitting at the right hand of the Father where you reign and rule and you're interceding for us. So God, would you give us the courage and the confidence to draw near with full assurance of faith and with a true heart and to hold fast to our hope, our sure hope in you, our faithful promise keeper. And God, would you give us the courage to not get caught up in little battles, but to consider one another and stir each other up to love and good deeds and give us the courage to um, to call people back to assembling with other believers for your glory and for their good and it's in Jesus name we pray